0: Welcome back to the 165th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one talking about how the Biden administration and the presidency could actually help rebuild unions across the nation, one going over Vivek Ramaswamy's plan in order to Cut the you know bureaucratic state down, and one coming from an activist who is on the ground on the democratic side of the aisle, providing insight for his party. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight—a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, does the modern executive branch have too much power? I have raised this one before, but. It becomes ever more apparent during an administration such as the Biden administration when they don't necessarily have control of all of Congress after this midterm election. And a lot of thing has to be done through executive power, executive order. And we see a lot of these administrations also making very stringent rules, which are overseen by the executive branch. So does that branch have too much power? It's a pretty simple question. I want to hear everybody's opinion, because it has been expanding for basically our entire lifetimes, if you're a part of Gen Z, most of the boomers' lifetime as well, ever since FDR and Woodrow Wilson set us on that path. All right, so let's jump into our first article, which comes from In These Times, How the Government Can Help Build Industrial Unions. So, no matter what your opinion on unions are, you can't deny that this has been a very, very important year for them. We have the SAG-AFTRA, we have the Writers, we have UAW, we had UPS, we also almost had the rail industry with their unions strike as well. So we've had lots of strikes, lots of unions trying to influence their industries and really fight for their members. So Biden is obviously a pretty pro-union president, and some are arguing, well, this is why you're seeing all this, because Biden's not going to step in and try to bust up these unions. He's not going to do the Ronald Reagan move, which is if those airline pilots or the waitresses... Sorry, they're not waitresses. I believe that they are stewardesses. I believe that's the proper name nowadays. They're not going to... you know, The government's not going to come in and break them up if they decide to strike. So that's why they're probably using this moment. And also... Inflation is really high, so it's putting pressure on these unions in order to fight for more benefits or more pay for their members so that they don't get lost during this time of high inflation. And also, they've been weak for a while, so this is the time. Ever since 2008, if not before, I mean, there have been some different strikes across the industries, of course, and the railroads, as they a good example, but they started to pick up during the Biden administration too. So some would argue, yeah, this is a really pro-union uh, administration. The NLRB is making it easier for unions to form if companies try to trust bust against them. But this article is saying, no, 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 no. The president, the executive branch, can do even more for unions. But let's really describe the union power and what this current moment of unionization is of union influence looks like. Quote, taking Biden's pro-union bona fides as real, it is common sense for organized labor to push him to activate the levers of government as far as humanly possible to strengthen unions before he is replaced by a surely awful Republican. The highlights of Biden's first term have been historic public investments in infrastructure and aggressively pro-labor NLRB that has begun to do the long task of bending labor law back in a helpful direction. If Biden wins the second term, the labor movement should think about pushing for direct material support for itself in a way that neither it nor the White House seem to have considered so far. So there is a little bit more to this quote, and we will go on to talk about it. But you see what they're doing here. They are saying, Biden, we know you're pro-union. You have shown to be pretty pro-union during your time in office. You have been, as he claims, the most pro-union president in a generation. And as some progressive people that I listen to to really hear the other side of the aisle, they start to say, well, yeah, he's pro-union, but is he really that pro-union? Like, is he really going that far out of his way in order to appease these unions, he could be doing a lot more. And you can see this sentiment once again. And it it does bring up the idea that once you give in, once you try to help out this one-siding, you recognize how important they are to your voter base, some people will try to leverage it. If you claim to be the most union-friendly president and there's more room for the unions to gain a little bit more power, there's more room for different types of policies that would benefit them even more, then you basically give them leverage to say, oh, are you really pro-union? Will you go this far? And you've seen a lot of pressure from the UAW, like, oh, Biden doesn't have our support quite yet. He has to earn that. And that's why he probably went down to the picket line. That's why he's supporting the strike right now with the UAW. So Yes, he has been more pro-union than past presidents, and yes, from if you're a Republican listening to this or you're someone on the other side of the aisle, like he has already done so much for unions. But if you're on the progressive side of the aisle, you're like, yeah, he's he's done a little bit for unions, but he could do way more. And the author goes to give a little bit more context of the current situation. Quote, the miserable 6% union density in the private sector means that reasons for unions to think industrial today are pretty scarce. But there are pockets of American business where union density is high enough that you can see the industry-wide effects of union power. Hollywood, Nevada casinos, airlines, these are all places where middle-class jobs exist only because unions have gained so much power that they can credibly threaten to disrupt an entire industry, end quote. And this is really one of the fundamental or the, the disrupting of the industry is a really fundamental part of this argument. You'll have lots of people on the left say, well, this is exactly how unions lever their position in order to gain a little bit of concessions from the people in power. They collectively bargain and they say, we are one block and we can shut down your industry. We can limit your profits. We can restrict what you can do by stepping off. And then, of course, Republicans, they're... Sitting there, saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Why would we want to give the employees so much power as to knock down an entire industry? Why would we want to punish the business owners who may not be able to necessarily do anything, or maybe trying to keep some of their profits for themselves? Why should we allow the workers to have so much power in order to control the outcome or direction of the industry?" And some people may think that is a, a little harsh and. Some people may think that the progressive position is a little harsh, which is you're giving power to the people in order to screw over the employer. So there's, you know, back and forth on both sides. Both sides can see or have their opinions on what is too harsh, but that is really what is at the root of this idea, which is should you be able to completely cripple an industry united as a working union, or should you not be able to do it? That is really, really what's part of it. And I think that some people have really mixed opinions about union power in America because they grew up in a time when unions were really, really popular. Maybe their parents were even a part of them. But then they lived through a Reagan time when the economy was booming there for a little bit and he had a really anti-union stance. And we've kind of had limited union power since then. So they've also seen an economy un- Uh, affected by major union policy or major union control. So people that are a little bit older have a mixed bag. Our generation hasn't seen many very active unions. We only really know them in theory. A lot of the big companies, Starbucks, Tesla, Amazon, They don't necessarily have unions. They actually actively, I don't want to say fight against it, not like union busting, but they definitely pursue tactics to not have unions pop up. So our generation doesn't necessarily know everything. We know about unions in theory, but we haven't necessarily seen these huge movements that can really shift how our generation thinks about these. So that's why this UAW strike, the UPS strike, all of these in this pro-union presidency with Biden, it will define the policy that people in Gen Z, this generation, take. If they see the UAW strikes and they're not looking for a new car and they see that the strikers came away with more money like the UPS guys, they may have a a positive opinion. Maybe they have a family member who works in one of those plants. But if they have a strike and it keeps going and then car prices go up because there's a limited supply and Gen Z people who are coming right out of college or need one for a job they have to go to a car dealership and have to pay more money in order to get that car they're probably going to not be happy with the current union strike so this is going to be a time that really defines how this generation thinks about unions in my opinion because it's the first time that we have seen such activity and also we have a president who if he gets in for another four years with his sort of Protection of the unions and everything he's done so far. We may see even more unions pop up because of his NLRB stance, but also more strikes because they realize that the president will back them and he won't step in and actually end their strike like he did with the railroad workers because he was afraid that everything would uh, get shut down and that it would actually be much more painful that strike would be much more painful than the benefits that it would bring to the workers, which is one criticism of Biden, and that's why it's hard to really say that he's the most pro-union president ever. That's what the progressives point out. It's like, no, no, you actually stepped into the negotiations between the railroad union and the railroad companies, and you didn't actually fight for their pay time off. So that is one criticism that people level at him from one side of the aisle. So, how does the government move forward and actually increase the amount of private sector unions? Because that's what this article is about. It's proposing you know, tactics or different styles of governance that the Biden administration, the executive branch, Congress, legis- the legislator could impose in order to make a more union-friendly, if not more union-dense economy. Quote, The most meaningful thing would be abolishing right-to-work laws altogether and creating harsh penalties for unfair corporate union-busting tactics. But that would mean passing a transformational bill like the PRO Act, which will likely never get through Congress as long as the filibuster exists. The NLRB may make it marginally easier for unions to organize, but the White House cannot change the basic truth. The UAW will have to find a way to win big. Costly, time-intensive union drives at big factories owned by well-capitalized companies in poor right-to-work states where the workers are being squeezed by local politicians and employers alike. Can such union drives be won? Yes, moreover, they must be won, or worker power in that industry will go away. Simple. There is a big difference between hard organizing campaigns and an impossible one. If hard union organizing campaigns were never successful, America would not be or would not have any unions. If we take the hostile political landscape and inevitable union busting as a given, large-scale organizing becomes partially a question of resources. The UAW must be able to train and pay a lot of good organizers and put them in a lot of places for a long time to build successful campaigns in these conditions. So, if you notice here, obviously they have two different approaches here. One is governmental and one is not. I want to talk about the more governmental one, just because it's not necessarily as feasible, but they are giving a policy prescription, which I think is more interesting to talk about than, oh, go on the grassroots and organize. Because unions have been doing this for a long time. They've had a long and hard road doing this in lots of different factories. But there is something a part of the political agenda that they're pushing that actually would make it easier, which is abolishing right-to-work states. So I'll tell you now: I was born in Virginia, which is a right-to-work state. So I, I grew up underneath these policies. I, my family, you know, were fortunate enough that we had a, a small business. So. We, I also got to see this implemented, you know, working there during the, the summer. I never heard any union talk, and even if I did, I was a little too young to probably understand it. So there's this idea that in right-to-work states, they're actually undermining the unions and they're purposely doing it. Corporations are purposely moving their plants there in order to stop unionization. And that is 100% true. Companies are doing that in order to get away from cities and towns and different states that don't actually have right-to-work laws. But right-to-work laws ensure that a member of the company does not have to be forced into joining a union. They don't have to pay union dues if they do not want to because they're not a part of the union. They just don't want to be part of that organized. They can keep working when strikes go out, which can be very devastating for the union workers because hey, okay, we're going on strike and then half of the plant population is still working. So they don't necessarily, the companies don't necessarily feel the pain as much. But Remember here, they're trying to make it seem like it is only a big business-oriented law. And while it does help big businesses, too, it helps the citizenry, the population that doesn't want to be involved in a union, that doesn't want to get into the politics, that just wants to do their job because they love it, because they want to bring that paycheck home to their family. Now, does it always work perfectly? No. No policy ever does. And this has been something that the progressive side of the aisle, even the left, has been lampooning for a long time. Because when these right-to-work laws are there, it makes it harder to properly organize in these states, like they're talking about with these grassroots campaigns, because they have to actually go and convince every single person to join the union in order to have the most effective and most powerful uh, union they can in that location. Whereas in other states, all they need is a, a majority of the population at the factory in some cases. like I'll be generous and say like 75%. And then the other people that work there will be pulled into the union. They'll have to pay union dues. But in right-to-work states, if there's one person that stands out, they don't have to pay the dues. They don't have to join if the rest of the population is becoming unionized. So it's a policy that's meant to help big business, but it's also help, meant to help the people, like I said, that want to stay out of it. And does it always work that way? Does it mean sometimes that companies could, in theory, get away with having a little bit more leeway? You know, they don't necessarily have to pay their people as much because they're not afraid of them collectively coming together. But also, there's one aspect of this which I think is very, very uh, not represented. And, you know, that small business that I, I was talking about that my family has. I think that the reason there hasn't been a push to unionize at the the small business, besides the fact that it's small, is because these small businesses have the opportunity to really care about the people that work there, to treat them as family, to provide really good benefits. And I'm not saying that if there's a union there, they can't try to do that. The union will actually fight for that. But there's this idea that uh, unions are always a good thing with some people on the left, just purely... Um, on a superficial level. But remember this, the job of the union is to directly oppose the corporation. It is to build sentiment within the population of the workers that the company is screwing them over or that the company could give them more. Guess what that does? That creates a hostile or at least not as friendly of a relationship between management and the workers, the company and the workers. So when you're put onto hostile footing like that, maybe the company doesn't feel like being as friendly, being as straightforward, because they feel like, okay, well, they're going to fight for what they want anyway. And, you know, I do love my employees, but obviously they don't like me. They don't think I'm doing enough for them, even though we're struggling to get by. So it can build animosity. Whereas if you don't have a union sometimes, and I'm not saying it's the end all be all, but from personal experience, if you don't have that hostility directly between management and the union and you don't have the people at the bottom looking up and uh, saying that the corporation's not doing enough for them being riled up by a union and you don't have the management looking down on the people saying, oh, well, they just resent us and they don't understand what we have to do. When well, you don't have that sort of mentality, it makes it easier for you to concede and give more things to your people because you genuinely care about them. There's no malice going back and forth between you two. And I think that's one aspect that doesn't necessarily get talked about on either side of the aisle. But I think it's a really human aspect of this whole union argument. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from PolitiFact. Could the presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, lay off 75% of federal workers by himself? So... You obviously heard this claim at the very first debate from Vivek Ramaswamy, and even before that he was talking about it. Surprisingly, uh, just so you know, I'm recording this on Thursday morning, so the debate happened yesterday on Wednesday night. Surprisingly, he didn't bring that up as much. He was being a little bit more politician You know, I first heard that criticism from some of the you know, Fox talking heads who were trying to obviously shape our opinion. And I was like, I was pushing back. I was like, I guess you could say politician-y. I think it's just a little bit more unifying. Like he was adjusting his stat- strategy because he obviously came off as too divisive last time. But, you know, I slept on it. And I, I do agree he kind of went about it in a politician-y kind of way. But he didn't bring up this talking point about completely stripping the federal government of employees anymore. Maybe that's because he already said it, so he doesn't need to retread that ground, but I thought it was interesting that he didn't, you know, worm it in or, you know, add it to any of his talking points, because some people who really don't like the quote-unquote deep state, they would love those sort of talking points still. They would love to hear those sort of things. So, he released a position paper that is meant to outline how he can go about doing this, and lots of people tried to refute it. Let's just jump to a quote from the article. Quote, in a position paper released in mid-September, Ramaswamy called the administrative state a quote unconstitutional fourth branch of government. He asserted that he could single-handedly gut the federal workforce if he wins the presidency. Quote, we will use executive authority to shut down the deep state, Ramaswamy Ramaswamy said in a September 13 speech at the America First Policy Institute in Washington, D.C., whose top officials include former Trump administration officials, including Linda McDonald, and who headed the Small Business Administration, Larry Codlow, who was the National Economic Council director and Chad Wolf who was acting Secretary of Homeland Security. Legal experts are dubious of his interpretation. They said sweeping cuts need to be approved by Congress and not accomplished by presidential action alone. End quote. And this speaks to the executive power that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Is it too much of an overstep by the executive branch in order to have the power to fire all of the other parts of the executive branch that are using too much executive power. It is a very interesting philosophical, or at least, you know, if you want to be principled about principled about it, opinion, which is, okay, so do we want to give the executive so much power that they can fire everybody in order to limit executive power, or do we want to limit executive power in order to restrict them from limiting The power of other executive branches. You can see it's a little bit confusing, but you can see where I'm going with with that one. I hope it's an idea that sounds really, really nice. And to be honest, I do not know all the legals in it, legal in and outs. And I will present the counter argument from some of the people who say that he can't do it. Vivek basically goes forward and says, "Well, there there was a law that was passed in." You know, the 1980s that says the Ramaswamy, if he's president, could appoint director heads who can choose what the workforce looks like and can fire people. And if those director heads don't actually comply with his mandate to fire part of the population that works underneath them, then he can replace them. And, you know, it, it sounds pretty superficially pretty good. I, I don't necessarily know if he'll be able to fully shutter agencies I think that will be extremely tricky, especially when Congress passed into law that these agencies should exist and then left up the creation and implementation of them to the executive branch because that's how agencies work, such as the EPA. So we'll see how that one goes. And I still love that he's trying to swing forward the fences here, you know, these bold claims. But it does feel to me even if even if he could just outright fire people it feels like 75% is a high number i would even say 50% is a high number because you'll come up with realities that okay well some of these you know places they do really critical functions of the current american system and how can we eliminate them without causing a massive ripple effect and i think that ramaswamy based on his switching from debate 1 to debate 2 and how he is constantly shifting how he is constantly trying to listen to the base and appeal to them, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That's what politicians do. But when critical functions of the government are affected and then people get mad, I think he'll come directly up against the wall, which is public popular opinion. And then guess what? He'll probably cut and run on some of the restrictions or he'll try to say, oh, no, 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 I promise it will be fine, guys. I promise. You know, he is an executive, so maybe he's, you know, faced public backlash in the past and he's able to put up with a little bit of dissension, but I don't know. It's not how he's running his campaign. He seems like a person that wants to try to cater to the base. And, yes, he's willing to say some hardline things, but his base is what he wants to cater to, and he's constantly listening, working on his appearance while, you know, still being a little bit roguish. But, you know, he kind of hemmed it in this time because a lot of the criticism criticism last time was he was being a bit abrasive and he really wants to appeal to the people. So the second he goes through with this policy and he gets some backlash, we'll see if he would actually go through with it, if he'd be able to stick with it. I don't know. Just based on what I've seen currently, I don't think he could. But what are the counter arguments against this? Quote, Creating and maintaining federal departments is a joint process involving Congress and the president, Keefe said. Congress isn't a private sector-style board of directors, he said. It shares policymaking authority with the president, and the president cannot act unilaterally. A president might want to eliminate agencies, but to do so, the president would need Congress's approval. A president might want to eliminate large numbers of employees, but here again, that would require an act of Congress. That was Anne-Marie Lafoe, a West Virginia University law professor. She says she's a bit skeptical about Ramaswamy's argument that it would win in court, end quote. So you can see lots of divisiveness here, lots of back-and-forth opinions. Ramaswamy thinks he is legally able to do it, and other people are saying it's probably not likely, I feel as though there's a a tricky middle ground here. I think if it went to the Supreme Court, Ramaswamy may be able to get away with it, because while Congress and the executive are meant to be checks on one another, I would say they should be checks on one another. In a pure constitutional sense, they should be checks on one another for expanding the power of the executive and the power of Congress. And even if Rahman's probably is taking a little bit more executive power in order to limit the power that that branch has overall, I think there could be a, not saying it, you know, truly based in lawfare or in the Constitution, but simply in the principle of the matter that he's actually limiting, he's using the executive power to limit his agency, not expand it. And therefore, he's actually bypassing the checks and balances that the, the power balance between Congress and the executive, maybe maybe. Uh, That one just kind of popped into my head. So, you know, if it sounds crazy, if you're a lawyer, throw it down there. Tell me why I am so wrong. Or if uh, you're a lawyer and you think I'm right, tell me why I'm so right. I'd love that one, too. All right. Let's jump to our final article. it would be a really quick one. It comes from Daily Kos. Bill Hun, a progressive Democratic activist, has a message we need to hear sooner rather than later. So this is obviously talking to a more Democratic base. Uh, it actually comes from Daily Costs, you know, where they stand. At least if you've listened to some of the past podcasts, you'll know the angle that a lot of their authors take. But this is a progressive activist who's on the ground talking to people, and he's trying to give a warning to the Democratic Party about the upcoming election. Quote, I am a progressive activist journalist. As a former engineer and software developer, I love numbers, statistics, facts. Mixing politics with these skills makes it clear that economic policy has prompted or that is prompted by progressives are much more superior mathematically than all the machinations from the corporate-centric narrative that antiseptically enslave the American worker and the working class and the middle class. He goes on to shout out his radio show, and then he says, quote, I visit directly with people, Democrats at Democratic clubs and socially with people of all ideologies. Unfortunately, what I find is that the party leadership rarely gets the pulse of its base correctly. And this is really something that people have been alleging for a long time, both Republicans and Democrats. They are out of step with their base, they are in their Washington bubble. They're not on the ground listening to people. And, of course, there are senators, there are congressmen that are doing it, but there's been a long-term criticism of the party as a whole that they are not in line with the base that is supporting them. And Hun has some pretty strong words about why they need to wake up. Quote, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was a net positive, but had it not been biased to big business, it would not have been a bipartisan bill or passed for that matter. It benefits the business class more than the average citizen. They should also be concerned about wage growth disparities, with the average seeming positive, but many people not experiencing significant increases. The problem of policymaking favoring businesses over citizens has it must be underscored. Hun's message serves as a wake-up call to the Democratic base highlighting the importance of policies directly benefiting the populace and not filtering through corporations or the wealthy elite, end quote. And this is from the the Democratic perspective, and you could even argue that it's from the Republican side. If they really want to be pro-business, which I'm not saying that one party is more pro-business than the other, because I think they both have their business interests that they love— But if the Republicans also want to do that, instead of focusing on big business, focus on small business. And if the Democrats want to focus on the citizenry directly, stop focusing on big business and focus on the citizens. These are your base. This is how you talk directly to the people. How you get the pulse of the people is you go talk to them. You read their letters. I'm not accusing anyone of not doing that. But to pretend that you know what's going on when you're in Washington with all the lobbyists speaking in your ear and understanding what the average citizen wants... That's not necessarily true, and I'm not trying to just lampoon lobbyists. I have done this before. I'm not just trying to lampoon the politicians and say, oh, they only care about the Washington game. No, I'm not saying that it is genuine malice. I'm saying that if you're still locked in Washington, if you just stay there, if you only have friends in those circles, guess what? You're not going to be able to experience the other people out there, the base that you're trying to fight for. So go out, and as the kids would say, touch grass. Come on, get down in your districts. Go to the hard places. Volunteer at an underserved food pantry or with your church, which I'm not saying they don't do. Lots of people do on both sides of the aisle. But these sort of acts put you in direct confrontation with the people that you are trying to help and it allows you to empathize with their situation so you can see beyond the talking points in Washington. But that's enough on all of that stuff. Let's get to our daily delight. And this one comes from Boing Boing. New cat is supposed to chase a mouse away, but he ended up finding a tiny best friend. So, you know, sometimes, you know, there are people who are not really good at their job. They don't exactly do what they're supposed to do. And it happens with animals, too. Quote, a family got a cat to chase unwanted mice out of the house, but the plan backfired in a major way. In fact, the little mouse was the one chasing down the kitty, who was hidden under the table. End quote. But, you know, it wasn't just that the cat was afraid and the mouse was trying to chase him. No, they actually be- became friends. Quote, but the bold mouse persevered, scampering right up to the cat, not to scare him away, but to forge a friendship, and the fast friends they did become, with the cat rolling on his back to show his affection before the two cuddled up for a nap, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys doing this, or read any of today's articles, there's the link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And the link to the Twitter at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say stay safe, don't die.